and welcome to Security by the Book, a monthly podcast series from the Hoover Institution's Working Group on National Security, Technology, and Law. In this episode, Task Force Co-Chair and Hoover Senior Fellow Jack Goldsmith interviews Ord Kittry on his new book, Lawfare, Law as a Weapon of War. It was recorded on February 17th, 2016. So, um... 15 years ago, in November of 2001, then-Colonel Charles Dunlop, Dunlaps uh, coined the phrase lawfare in a very influential article uh, on the, just after the Kosovo, uh, the Kosovo conflict. And a, a decade later, he gave the concept what I think of as its mature definition. He defined um, lawfare as, and this is, and, and Ord Kittry opens his book with this quotation as well. Lawfare is the strategy of using or misusing law as a substitute for traditional military means to achieve a warfighting objective. That's what lawfare is. We're lucky tonight to have the person who coined the phrase and who first gave it its analytical substance and the person who's written the definitive treatment, a book-linked treatment of, of the idea. So we really look forward to this discussion. And it's, it's Ord's night, but I'm actually going to start with Charlie since he, he got there first. <laughs> So could you just tell us, you really did to kind of bring a new concept to the scene in 2001. How did that happen? And, and how do you view what lawfare is? Well, I wish I could tell you it was, you know, some long, you know, intellectual process. But actually, I was in the military then, and I was teaching law of armed conflict. And I, and I uh, was teaching to a group of senior officers, including a four-star. And our traditional way of justifying compliance with the law, law of war, and still part of it is, hey, we're Americans, we do the right thing, it's the right and moral thing. And I hit moral, and the four-star whips around, and he says, Dunlap, I don't want to hear about morals from a lawyer. I got a chaplain across the street to, uh, to do that for him. <clears throat> and so, but what I was, was trying to do is I was seeing more and more how adversaries were... Uh, using allegations of violations of the law of war to uh, further their aims. And when you're teaching, uh, and I come from a trial practice background, and you, you have to look, how are you going to access your audience? And in the military, the way you access that audience is that you give them an operational, a military reason on top of the moral reason. So in other words, you're not going to have operational success if the, if the enemy is able to exploit these things. And then the further thing is, and we know this as lawyers, you're trying to access audiences. And when you're talking about 19, 20, 21-year-olds who may not have a sophisticated understanding of the law, and they typically didn't, what you look for is a bumper sticker, something that they can remember. And so law, lawfare just... I was thinking of warfare and law, and then it, then I Googled it, and somebody did use the word, like back in the dawn of man, yeah. for a landlord-tenant. Right. Some kind of landlord-tenant thing. But uh, So let me just ask you one follow-up on that, and then we'll go to Ord. Um, but the article from 2001 was an article expressing, as I recall, concern. It was a concern that our forces are, are complying with international law in a very fastidious and careful way, and yet somehow... We're do, the way that we're doing things lawfully is being used against us, and it's being used against us in an unlawful way. And we'll get into this discussion more, but how does that concept 
uh, give solace to these 21-year-olds. I don't understand how that worked. Well, well, the fact of the matter is, is if you give the enemy opportunities by not complying with the law of war, then you're giving them opportunities to achieve an operational objective, which is very Clausewitzian, because Clausewitz talks about war is about the submission of the adversary to your will. And there's lots of ways that you can get to that end, and yep. this is one of them. But I will tell you, I'm glad that you gave my kind of current view of yep. what lawfare is. And I did start out negative, and um, there's a, uh, an article written in Harper's kind of about that. And I, I thought, you know, we need to start talking about the positive ways that you can use law. Because at the end of the day, you'd rather battle in a courtroom or in some other venue than on a real battlefield where real human beings are getting hurt. Great. So, Ort, um, tell us about your book. I have to say that it's, it's both analytically interesting and in kind of parsing the lawfare concept, and it's full of stories and examples and case studies. Uh, really, it's, it's the definitive collection uh, of the examples of lawfare. So tell us how you view lawfare and tell us maybe, to give the audience a flavor of it, three, four, five examples of prominent uses of lawfare. Sure, absolutely. I want to start by thanking you, Jack, for organizing this event. I want to thank Charlie for planting the seed, for originating the concept on which I built my book. I also want to thank... Blind, uh, blind squirrel finds acorn. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I also want to thank uh, Blake Radcliffe, uh, the uh, editor of the book, who's uh, in the back from Oxford University Press, who's been great all along the way. Um, the book is an attempt to build on Charlie's work by identifying and analyzing additional examples of lawfare, uh, additional to those that he uh, identified in his articles, and also by assessing how lawfare is developing and why. It discusses why lawfare is, has now, in the last 20 years, become increasingly powerful and prevalent. It also goes through and uh, includes detailed analyses of lawfare as waged by U.S. private sector litigators, by Treasury against Iran, by the Chinese government in a variety of arenas, and by all major parties to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, Jack asked me to give a few examples of lawfare. And for me, one of the fun things about the book was interviewing folks who had been involved in lawfare. And there are actually a, a few people, other than <coughs> Charlie, uh, here in the room who have been involved. Aliza uh, Lewin, for example, right here in the front. Uh, her and her dad uh, were the litigators who brought uh, the very important uh, Boim case, um, which uh, went after the Holy Land Foundation, uh, which was a Hamas fundraising entity, and uh, managed to contribute to closing them down and also setting a precedent uh, in an opinion uh, <coughs> authored by Judge Posner that if you contribute money to a terrorist group, even if you say, oh, well, I'm contributing to their non-terrorist activities, that you can be held liable when somebody is killed by that terrorist group. And that principle has been built on by a number of uh, litigators. Uh, it's been built on, for instance, the uh, <clears throat> U.S. private attorneys used litigation lawfare to seize $2 billion from Iran in response to its killing of 241 soldiers in the Beirut Marine Barracks bombing. Interestingly enough, the Beirut Marine Barracks bombing, which was <coughs> organized by Iran and implemented by Hezbollah, uh, had, the Reagan administration never responded to it, uh, in part uh, <coughs> because uh, Cap Weinberger at the time thought that there wasn't enough evidence of Iranian complicity. 
So he ordered a stand down with regard to a plan to bomb the <coughs> Sheikh Abdullah barracks in Lebanon. 20 years later, a litigator based in DC named Steve Perlis won a judgment against Iran in a US district court. And the judgment was for $2 billion, which was subsequently frozen uh, with help from Treasury. And that $2 billion was a lot more money than that Sheikh Abdullah barracks was worth to Iran. Uh, one other uh, example that I want to give, one of my favorite stories with regard to litigation lawfare, uh, has to do with a recent case in which U.S. private attorneys used litigation lawfare to win $1 billion in damages from a large bank named Arab Bank, which was held liable by a U.S. court for terrorist attacks by Hamas. This was the first time that a bank which provided financial services to a terrorist group was held liable for the damages caused to those people who were killed uh, by that terrorist group. Was, what was interesting is the evidence used in the case, the evidence used in this U.S. District Court case, had originally been seized by Israel in the Palestinian territories. Interesting, the first time the Israelis deployed the evidence that they had of Arab Bank doing business with terrorists, this was 2004, Israeli special forces went into a Ramallah branch of Arab Bank and forced the clerks at gunpoint <clears throat> to withdraw funds from a specified list of bank accounts. They got $9 million <clears throat> and a lot of bad publicity. Look, here are the Israelis robbing a bank in broad daylight. Isn't this outrageous? Plus, they got money from some accounts and not others because some of the accounts were overdrawn at the time. Israelis learned their lesson. No longer were they going to take the evidence that they had and use it kinetically to go in and grab money from banks. Instead, what they did was they provided that same evidence to litigators who used it uh, a few years later in this case to win a $1 billion judgment from Arab Bank, which was 100 times more than the Israelis had gotten out of that raid. But those are three domestic <coughs> law examples, and I would tell you those aren't even representative examples in the book, um, in the sense that lawfare happens everywhere, and, and one of the maybe disagreements between you two is, I don't know, is the extent to which the United States is on the winning <coughs> or losing end of that. Those are examples where U.S. courts are being used, the law is being used to achieve a certain foreign policy end, perhaps. Um, but we're often on the losing end of it, and I think that's the way you originally, but, but not later, portrayed it. So what about the international examples? What about the ICC? What about um, universal jurisdiction? They're out, outside of the domestic litigation context. Sure. So um, happy, to, happy to talk about that. You know, one, one example that I talk about, th 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 those were examples of instrumental lawfare where the U.S. Its litigators use law as a weapon to go after the bad guys. The bad guys, <clears throat> if we may call them that, are also using law as a weapon. And one thing they do is they use against the U.S. the fact that we are more law-abiding when it comes to international law than they are. And Charlie, Charlie gave some great examples in, in his book. One has to do with Taliban fighters deliberately hide among civilians when firing at U.S. troops. Firing from among civilians is a clear violation of the law of war. The Taliban don't care because they pay no price. U.S. officers know that causing civilian deaths, which are disproportionate to military objective, is a war crime. 
So they tend to be very, very careful. And the Taliban, just by firing from amongst civilians, end up building for themselves uh, a kind of a fortress that protects them better than whatever real fortress they could come up with would achieve. Uh, you also have an example of uh, Hamas, uh, which, <clears throat> interestingly enough, I thought, Hamas chose to concur in the Palestinian Authority joining the International Criminal Court, despite that Hamas tactics make Hamas far more vulnerable to war crimes prosecution than is Israel. But why would they do this? Why would Hamas subject themselves in order to also subject the Israelis? It's because the law of armed conflict exerts far more leverage over Israel than it does over Hamas. Uh, you know, as Chapter 5 discusses, the ICC has thus far proven incapable of prosecuting cases against uncooperative authoritarian regimes, such as Sudan, for example, right? The Sudanese president, there's an arrest warrant against him. He travels all over uh, Africa and the Arab world. The ICC hasn't been able to move against him. As one Gaza-based professor told me, everybody in Hamas is aware of how Omar al-Bashir continues to travel all over Africa and the Arab world. If the price of ICC action is not being able to travel to Europe or America, where they take this stuff seriously, that might be a significant cost to Israeli leaders, but not to Hamas leaders. So let me ask you, so those are a lot of different examples. Um, it, it's not clear to me what is distinctive about lawfare. It seems that what you're describing is the use of law, whether it's domestic or international, mm -hmm. in the most favorable forum that a plaintiff or a claimant has to try to bring that claimant some sort of financial or tactical or strategic advantage in a conflict. And that's what law is domestically and internationally, and I would say always has been. So do you agree with that? And Charlie, I want you to comment on this also. Is there something distinctive about lawfare as opposed to seeing law as an instrumental tool that people use to their best, to the best of their abilities to achieve the advantages they want to achieve? Is there something distinctive about lawfare? What I would say is that um, one of the things I found most interesting about the book is that the U.S. Uh, in terms of lawfare is behind several other countries. Uh, as I point out in the book... What do you mean by behind? China uh, has adopted lawfare as a strategy. Uh, my book is the first English language comprehensive book when it comes to lawfare. There are several books in Chinese published by the People's Liberation Army. They've adopted lawfare as part of their uh, strategy. The Israelis have a lawfare office. The United States has no lawfare doctrine, no strategy, no point person for it. Um, that was maybe okay 20 years ago when lawfare was a less powerful and prevalent tool, but I'm happy to discuss the ways in which lawfare is now much more powerful and prevalent than it was before. People have always tried to use law as a weapon. It's a much more powerful and prevalent tool now, and it seems to me that's why it's so important for the U.S. both to more systematically figure out how to defend against lawfare but also figure out how to more systematically wage lawfare itself against its adversaries. Okay, we'll follow up on those. But Charlie, do you, do you think all of these examples are lawfare? And is there something distinctive about lawfare? Or is it in the, in the kind of national security and war fighting arena? Or is it just what we usually think out of, as, of as law applied in the military context? Well, I think that there is something to be said for, for your point, Jack, that you know, a lot of this is part of law and, and not particularly unique to 
to the military. But I do think in recent years uh, that because of two things, one, the information revolution, which particularly with respect to uh, violations of the law of war, would we have Abu Ghraib if people didn't have cell phone. And I'm not suggesting that we should not have exposed that. I'm just suggesting what it have happened. But I also think globalization has a lot to do with it. One of the things Ward points out in his book is that China didn't have law. They had law, but not the way we would think about it. But you can't live in the 21st century and conduct commerce without law, international law, forums, and so forth. This is why when I went to law school, if they had international law, I didn't, I, A, I didn't take it, but B, I don't remember. But it's gotten so important because of the commercial aspects. And what we will find when you look through the history of warfare is that anything that becomes, uh, you know, prominent in the commercial realm, be it industrialization, the internal combustion engine, whatever, it's going to bleed over into, into warfare in some way. So I do think that uh, there's much more prominence of the role of law. We have more in international institutions. And more people have a consciousness. So, so there are more advantages. This comes out of your book. There are many more fora. There are many more laws that touch on military and national security activities. There are many more fora where actors can challenge, say, the United States, or the United States can challenge actors about their, about their uh, military activities. Now, here, here's one big caution I think that we need to keep in mind. Every time the U.S. or any country, including Israel, gets criticized in, you know, violating the law or uh, something is filed, that doesn't mean they're part of the enemy. You know, in a democracy, law is the way you control your, your military. So I don't want people to walk out, and I have to tell my students this, law isn't bad. It's just that it can, like anything else, it can be exploited. And, you know, people see that in the commercial realm. But we can't get to the mode where if somebody claims the U.S. military did something wrong, they must be working for the enemy, because that, that would be wrong, and that would be an abuse. It would be an abusive form of lawfare on the other side. Right. So let me challenge something. I agree with that. Let me challenge something you said sure. about how the United States is not good at this. And I think we engage in lawfare all the time, and I think quite successfully a lot of the time. I mean, just think about the doctrines that we, as, a, as our government, has developed and pushed on the international stage since 9-11. Think about how we've developed the, the law of non-international armed conflict in a way that is quite advantageous to us, and in a way that we've convinced not everyone, but many nations against their original inclinations may be the right way to view it. Think of our doctrine, doctrine of um, the way we talk about anticipatory self-defense, which under Bush no one agreed with, but under Obama it has become more accepted. Think about um, 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 the unwilling and unable doctrine that we've really pushed and gotten a lot of other nations on board for. Think about how we use the UN Security Council whenever we want to achieve a, a sanctions regime or unwind a sanctions regime. So I would say that the United States, yes, we'll talk about how we're on the losing end sometimes, but I would say that we're quite adept, although I agree we don't have any kind of centralized coordinator, I think we're quite adept at, at using lawfare. Would you agree with that? So I would say that the U.S., uses lawfare sporadically. Uh, I have a whole chapter in my book on how Treasury waged financial lawfare yeah. against Iran in a very, very sophisticated way. My uh, <clears throat> concern, as I express in the book, is that the U.S. 
does not do this in a systematic way. Look, if the U.S. is going to wage maximally effective lawfare against a particular adversary, right, it needs to deploy a multi-pronged campaign. Right? You've got to go after the adversary itself, its material supporters, its financial service providers, using criminal and civil legal tools, and where appropriate, coordinating with application of kinetic weapons. Right? You need to coordinate both interagency and with civil litigators who may have evidence or claims that could be used to supplement and complement the government's campaign against the adversary. Neither the U.S. government as a whole, you know, you've, you've talked to the litigators, for example, or if you look at what was done, you know, there's one or two examples of where all of the lawfare tools of the government were brought together. One that I talk about in the book is with regard to Carl Lee, who's a Chinese uh, provider of, uh, uh, of nuclear equipment to Iran. But neither the government as a whole nor any of the agencies individually, including justice, defense, state, treasury, has a point person for identifying lawfare offensive opportunities and defensive requirements, coordinating lawfare, learning the lessons of prior lawfare efforts, or pursuing lawfare innovation. They don't systematically engage in coordination with each other on lawfare issues, either with each other or with civil litigators. The book includes a lot of specific recommendations for how the U.S. could more effectively wage and defend against lawfare. Some are specific some are general and some are specific to particular adversaries, including the 13 recommendations for how the U.S. could more effectively prepare for waging and defending against lawfare. Give us the top three. Give us the top three. If, if you're the dictator for a day, what do you change in the government to make us better lawfare fighters? I think the first thing that the government needs to do is invest time and resources in assigning and empowering officials to build the capacity to systematically and innovatively deploy and counter lawfare. Well, what does that mean concretely? What it means Tell me. Because my reaction to what you said is, mm -hmm. I actually think there is a lot, at least when I was in the government, there is actually a lot of, they didn't call it coordination on lawfare, but there was coordination among the policymakers and the, and the lawyers, either within DOD or across the government. Again, the interagency process is definitely far from ideal, about how they could use legal tools to achieve a certain end. Um, so what, what do you want? Do you want someone, do you want there to be a lawfare czar in the White House? I mean, what... Do you, what, what beyond the interagency lawyers process in combination with the interagency policy process concretely would, would you do? So I'd say, first of all, structurally, I do think that you need to have uh, someone, an office. The Israelis do this. The Israelis have an office uh, in which they have many of their best attorneys, and they are very proactive with regard to lawfare. They figure out where the law next lawfare challenge might come. As I discuss in the book, they have a network of attorneys all over the world. Fact of the matter, you know, I, I served in the in the government for 11 years, and um, when it came to issues such as dealing with the Russians, there, there was nobody in the U.S. government that had any idea about Russian law. You know, I had to negotiate these deals with the Russians without anybody to turn to on the U.S. side. Um, you know, if, if you're serious about lawfare, you have people who are expert in Chinese law, you have expert in Russian law, you uh, set up a system, and you also take a different approach to law. When I was in the legal advisor's office, people would turn to lawyers at the end of the policy development process. They would come to us and say, look, this is, the policy people would say, this is what we want to do. Is it legal or not? And if it's not legal, tell us how to tweak it so that we can make it legal. We were, in the legal advisor's office, we were compliance determiners, like judges deciding is it legal or not and how to tweak it. It seems to me there needs to be a change, a conceptual change, in which 
the government's international lawyers focus on law not just as a constraint, but they also need to think creatively about and be capable of deploying law as a weapon. Gerald, you have thoughts on this? Uh, yeah, a couple. Uh, I, I do think that you know the Chinese do have a doctrine they call it juridical warfare. Uh, they are organized, but I think we need to be careful about this because I do agree with you, Jack. We we do do a good job at at some things. Uh, I think it within the the Department of Defense we we probably ought to have some sort of doctrine, but we do have pieces of it. I can remember uh, in air operations centers, you know, we had one JAG and you didn't see the plan until the the map, the major air attack plan was being briefed, and if you had an objection. They would have to take that sortie out. They couldn't, they couldn't reflow that sortie off of the plant. And so now then we embedded lawyers in, in the development process. So those are the things that we ought to, to look for. I'm almost wondering, though, if, if the word lawfare would be good for that because it, it, is, it has been stylized, especially in the Israeli-Palestinian uh, thing, so much that uh, people might you know, have a reaction that would not be the reaction. But certainly we, we really do need to, especially as we look at China, and people don't talk about Russia. Uh, Russians are pretty smart international lawyers. And if you look at some of the stuff they've said about, uh, you know, the ICJ decision in Kosovo and unilateral declaration of independence and then, you know, uh, things going on in the Ukraine, they have a, so we need to be able to counter that in a smart way. Uh, but I don't know that it would, if we had this law weapon that was called that, that would become a hot button issue for other people. So I think we need to be For a lawfare attack. For a lawfare attack, you know. Human rights groups and everyone else are, would, 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 would see it. I think we can do a better job, but, uh, and we do need more organization. Uh, so let me ask you on this. Um, can you give us an example, just to wrap this point up, is there, is there something that's happened in the last decade where the United States didn't do so well on the lawfare front that the kind of coordinated and explicit attention uh, that you're advocating might have made the outcome better for us? Sure. I would say a couple of examples. Um, one is, you know, almost nobody realizes it, but the U.S. is currently uh, undergoing a preliminary investigation by the International uh, Criminal Court for war crimes uh, supposedly uh, committed uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, Jack, when you were uh, in, in office, you in the, in the Bush administration, I have my issues with the George W. Bush administration, but, but you guys did a great job of trying to protect the U.S. against that sort of thing, right? You had your Article 98 agreements. You, you didn't sign the ICC charter. Uh, now you have the, uh, the U.S. being investigated by the ICC. And I talk about it in the book. The, the, the current administration just doesn't seem to be taking this seriously. It's, it's interesting when you compare it with the, with, with the Israelis, who uh, Israel, uh, in order to buy a nine-month respite, in Palestinian lawfare against Israel, the Israelis released 78 Palestinian prisoners, many of them convicted of brutally murdering Israeli civilians in exchange for the Palestinian Authority refraining for eight months from joining the ICC and other international organizations and treaties. It's interesting why they are so much more concerned about the investigation of them than the U.S. is of the investigation so let, of us. Let me follow up on that. I mean, how, how confident are you that the Obama administration is not doing something very aggressively behind the scenes 
And what would you, if you were president, be doing in front of the scenes? Are you going to withdraw support from the ICC? Is that what you advocate? Do you think we should um, be in there making our legal arguments as to why um, as to why these investigations are unwarranted? And how would this process you're talking about help? So what would you do concretely, and how would this process help? Sure, look. The, the Obama administration isn't doing. Mm -hmm. I don't have access to the Obama administration's sort of secret machinations on this issue, but I know that I describe in the book when the, when the issue first arose, when it became clear that the ICC prosecutor was seriously thinking of listing the U.S. in the 2014 report, uh, you know, they sent a delegation and said a few things. Um, it didn't have much of an impact. Um, you know, I mean, I think uh, if you're serious about this sort of thing, you notice, for example, that uh, most of the ICC's top contributors are close U.S. allies uh, who depend on U.S. troops to protect them. Podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit Hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.